The wheel of time turns and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to po- welcome to Wattcast. Let's see if I can say it right the first time. Wattcast is a Wheel of Time book club where we read through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and then watch Amazon's upcoming Wheel of Time TV show. I'm Caleb Wimble, and with me are Katie Jarvis. Hello. Dan Katinsky. Hey, everyone. And Keely Frank. Hello. You can find us at wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast. Your support means a lot, even a dollar or two helps. Join us on Patreon at the $5 Tar Valentier, and you will get access to special bonus episodes uh, when we have the chance to record those. In those, we'll probably talk about things like Wheel of Time short stories, graphic novels, video games, the failed TV pilot, because as it turns out, this is not the first time somebody has tried to make this TV show, and more. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. Um, very uh, fun to find out who was in the cast of that uh, original pilot as well. Um, for all of our episodes, uh, whether you support us by Patreon or not, you can e- email us questions at contact at wattcast.net with the subject line questions, and we will answer them here on the show. So let's get started. This is our inaugural episode. Thank you so much for joining us. We are starting the show by reading through the first novel in Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series, The Eye of the World. This tom was published by Tor, the Tom Dougherty label, in January of 1990, not too long after I was born. Uh, Eye of the World tells the epic story of a fantasy world where the devil is real, and a powerful group of witches and samurai fight to make sure the devil doesn't get out of his prison to eat the world. Somehow, a group of teenagers from a small town of sheep farmers might be the only ones who can stop this from happening, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves there. The series was originally intended to be a trilogy in the style of Lord of the Rings. Instead, if you are coming to this today, you will notice that it is a whopping 14 books long, plus a prequel novel. Um, The books were published over 22 years, and sadly, Robert Jordan died before he could finish them. The last three books ended up being completed by Brandon Sanderson, who you might know from The Mistborn books or the Stormlight Archive. He did that under the supervision of Jordan's editor and wife, Harriet McDougall, who has sort of been a guiding light throughout the entire series, was instrumental in sort of planning the plot. Along with, uh, along with Jordan, she has been his editor since well before he started writing The Wheel of Time uh, and worked very heavily, I believe, in their home Dungeons & Dragons campaigns also, like in terms of, uh, of uh, some of the characters who are actually characters that they played or played with friends and then later incorporated into the novel, like many, many epic fantasy stories. I started reading these books around eight or nine years old after a friend introduced them to me. I had just finished reading The Lord of the Rings for the first time, 
this friend got really, really excited to hear that I loved Tolkien. And they said, hey, if you like stories about a powerful wizard showing up to a small town of farmers and whisking them off to escape a bunch of scary wraiths and black cloaks on horseback, you really got to check out this Wheel of Time stuff. And I did. Um, and at first I was like, oh, this is really, really Lord of the Rings. And then it started to take turns, started to become something very different. I couldn't get enough of it. Um, so I didn't stop reading Wheel of Time until many years later. Uh, by the time Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson, after he passed, finished the series, I was no longer a kid. I was a 20-something in law school. Katie, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your relationship to either to the Wheel of Time or to fantasy stories more generally? Hi. Well, I, I liked hearing your story. Um, I am a English professor, a writer, and an avid reader. Um, I, I feel like I read everything, but I read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy, and I, I write everything, but I also write a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. Um, uh, this is my first time coming to the novel, and I knew pretty much nothing about it, so I'm looking at it with fresh eyes and seeing definitely lots of connections uh, like to Lord of the Rings so far in the first 10 chapters. Um, but it's just been an exciting start to the journey. And uh, it's a bit daunting how many books there are, but also life is long and uh, I'm excited to, to look into all of them. Awesome. Um, our, our, uh, and, I, and you mentioned, you know, that you're writing fantasy stories yourself uh, and have written, you know, num a number of things in this space, maybe over time. I happen to know that they're really good ones uh, of of what I have had the pleasure of reading. Uh, are, is there any of the stuff you're writing or have written that you're interested in, in sharing or the things that you have uh, published or that will be published sometime soon that you would uh, want our listeners to check out? Um, let's see. I may have to get back to you next time with some more specifics, but I have a, a couple short stories, one coming out and one that recently came out. Um, and I am writing sort of a coming of age fantasy. So I think I have a lot to learn from the eye of the world. Um, and even in just starting it, it's giving me ideas for, for the current project I'm working on and, and uh, just sort of how you can build an exciting world. Um, and, and there's a lot of good and evil at play, which maybe that's always the case, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're def definitely working in big binaries in, in this first book, which I, I think we'll get into. Uh, but but thanks, Kaylee, uh, or um, Katie, I'm sorry. <laughs> I will be doing that a lot as I look at... Uh, at <laughs> Three C names in this call, two of which begin <laughs> begin with C A, uh, so um, or or you know C sound or C A. Dan, what about you? Uh, who are you? What what is your uh, mysterious relationship uh, to to me, perhaps? And and how long have you been meaning to read the series? Yeah, it's definitely been a while. Um, so hey, everyone, uh, Dan Katinsky. I'm a UX uh, senior designer at a consulting firm in Philadelphia. Um, yeah, I've known about this series since I was a little kid, but I always felt kind of too far past me at the moment. Um, you guys were into it. Caleb, I think you and Josh, um, our other brother, were reading it when I was a little kid. So I've always been familiar with the series, but just kind of at an arm's length um, and never got around to reading it until now. So with the, the news of the show and kind of the idea of a podcast finally gave me the incentive to start this series. <laughs> I think the number of books felt a little daunting. It's always hard investing in a series that's past mm -hmm. 10 books. So I think it, it just felt too much of a defined world to actually just dive in. So glad I'm finally getting around to it. Yeah, I, and I found the same 
thing. And I came to the series when there were only eight books. Like it felt uh, incredibly daunting at that point in 1998 or 99, um, right, right around time. I think it was right, right before, right before book nine was published. Um, so I'm also really finding, I think this gives us a nice structure, having one season of the show coming out, having this target of we can get through eye of the world. We can talk about this on its own. We'll see how long the show goes. They've already greenlit a season two. Uh, they uh-huh. are, uh, Amazon is so in- invested in this being their, if not their Game of Thrones, I think in being their magicians uh, or, you know, like like similar um, similar recent long running fantasy series, uh, especially in the YA space, which the Wheel of Time is expressly not a YA story. I think we'll talk about this a little later. And they attempted at one point later in the 90s as the publishing industry shifted. And as YA became a huge deal and any books that had teenage protagonists in them started to be classified as YA, they, the publisher did this thing where they wanted to split Eye of the World into two separate books and write a new beginning, adding on to the Eye of the World. Because, you know, the, first, the, the biggest thing Eye of the World needed was more backstory at the beginning. It definitely needed more long scenes of setting up a village and shepherds. This time as children, before we get into the action, I think that was really, uh, you can hear the sarcasm in my voice, (laughs) successful decision. uh, And we'll get to why we're not reading the additional chapter or short story they added at the the beginning uh, of that one. Um, But Keely, uh, tell us about you. I happen to know you are very well read. You probably read half a dozen sci-fi or fantasy books in the time it takes me to get through one. Um, what, what, what about you? What's your relationship to the genre and to life? Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Keely. I work in social services and I've been a pretty big reader my whole life. I grew up surrounded by books. My dad has been kind of like obsessed with high fantasy, just fantasy in general. So we always had boxes and boxes of books and individual Ziploc bags in our attic. Like he loved like Raymond Feist everywhere. And, um, he also loved a lot of Stephen King, which I am not mm. a fan of Stephen King. <laughs> I think probably because he had so much hype growing up. Um, but yeah, I kind of found my way to fantasy and like, let's say darker sci-fi through Frankenstein in 12th grade. Mm. And now it's my favorite book. I have like 30 different editions of Frankenstein tattoos that are Frankenstein. <laughs> so um, I do tend to read a lot uh As you guys can see behind me, I uh, have copious amounts of books and stacks next to me that don't fit on my shelf. Um, I have never read this series. I did own a a couple times throughout my life. I've had like the first or second book. And then just the idea of getting into something that where like each book mm-hmm. just gets longer and longer and it just feels <laughs> never ending. It's like, like you said, in the time that it would take me to read this book, I could read like seven others. So that's why I've never really picked it up. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited for it. Um, it will probably take me a little bit longer to be able to map everything in my head. Um, I really mm-hmm. lucked out with reading A Song of Ice and Fire right as Game of Thrones came out because mm. it helped me connect who everyone was. Um, so I didn't get having lost. a face. Yeah, having a face mean like, oh, that actor is that person because especially with fantasy names, like yeah. I am gonna butcher all of them. So <laughs> it helps if I'm like, oh, that's how you say it, because um, I also go out of my way to make them sound ridiculous so that I will remember <laughs> them. So I'm really excited to be 
you know, reading it finally and can have one of these off my bucket list now. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I find the same thing with adaptations. I, I feel like it's a double-edged sword because it helps so much to be able, when you have these giant cast of characters, be able to put the names uh, to the faces, get all those connected. And then the flip side is that that person can become indelibly locked in your brain forever as the version of the character. And, you're, and, you become, and I, I become unable to see anyone else. And sometimes it's a good thing, like uh, when they align, you know, I feel like um, for the most part, the Lord of the Rings cast for the films, like oh, they, yeah. they largely align so well with my ideal, for, especially like, you know, Gandalf uh, with the Ian McKellen or Sar- Saruman with Christopher, Christopher Lee. Um, well, I guess we'll see how that goes uh, with the Wheel of Time show. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like that happens regardless whether or not it was before or after. Like, I feel like once I see mm-hmm. something visually so long, so if I read the book first and then watch the TV show or a movie, that starts to become the image, even if that's not the original image I had. It just kind of takes over whatever I had like created in my mind for that. So I feel like it's inevitable that that happens, at least for me. Mm-hmm. So I, that, I think I, I can... Bad. I can remember some books where I can like picture the image I had or even like the way I pronounced the name before I saw the show. And then I can also picture like, you know, obviously the character in the show. And eventually, Mm. like you said, I think they meld together. But it's cool when you can sometimes be like, oh, I pictured this and I said it this way. But now now my perception is changing. (laughs) Yeah. On that note, has anyone has anyone taken a look at the cast list or seen the trailer for the show at this point? Um, I'm, I'm getting some nods. Um, it's definitely been a minute for me. I, I saw the trailer when it first came out, um, but now I'm having trouble remembering faces or whoever was attached to that. Um, I, I didn't really look at the cast list because it wouldn't make, I mean, it wouldn't really mean much to me because I, I hadn't read the book. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no surprises there. The big standout has to be Rosamund Pike uh, yeah. for Moraine as sure, who is one of, I am, well, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I mean, I, I know that all of you have only known, uh, have only known the character of Moraine for a few chapters so far. Um, and I guess this is a good place to note that I, uh, I will be doing my best to avoid throughout this whole show, any spoilers for future events. I'm sure inevitably I will fail and start to say something that is a spoiler, and at which point one of my co-hosts will press a button that administers an electric shock to the base of my <laughs> chair, uh, or, or they will just start making frantic hand motions on me to stop the thing I'm saying because I got carried away. Uh, but at the risk of, of, of getting close to that, Rosamund Pike was one of those castings for Moraine were announced where uh, the, the moment they said that, and I'm thinking of her face and I'm thinking of some of her last few films, um, whether it's Gone Girl or anything else she's done recently, I'm like... I I see that. It was like one of those Im- immediate, like when, when you talk about um, a lot of the descriptions of Moraine early on, especially, you know, you get that, that the ageless quality that is, uh, that is often described to her and the inability to tell, um, is this, is this a really, really young woman? Is this a woman approaching her middle age? Like what, what, what is going on behind her eyes? Has she seen, th- seen things? Um, there's something vaguely mysterious about her i don't know like did anybody else have that same same impression uh or if you've seen uh rosamund pike in things at all does she other than being much taller than moraine is described uh anything that matched there so i didn't watch the trailer um there's kind of 
like you mentioned, there's so many adaptations coming out that I got kind of overwhelmed with how many trailers and trying to keep track of everything because like <laughs> I just started reading the Foundation books. I am halfway through the first Dune book for the first time. Now this. <laughs> so I got kind of overwhelmed with all of the characters. I pictured Maureen more as like a Kate Blanchett mm. kind of person because she can play like that really ethereal but then also potentially like a more evil character as we saw her in, you know, the Thor movie. So um, I'm totally on board with Rosamund Pike because I love her as a person. I've watched many interviews with her, not necessarily any of her actual movies. So I buy it. And then we have um, in the longer list of the cast, a lot of fresh faces, which I think mm-hmm. is really cool. They're, they're trying to pool in um, a whole a lot of actors that don't have tons of recognition for the younger characters, I think in large part because they wanted these to be, um, they didn't want to bring baggage to the characters who are teenagers and who are going to be like changing really dramatically throughout the story and maybe not wanting to have so many assumptions. Though we do have a few actual Game of Thrones uh, returning cast members like uh, like Michael Amelo Hatton, who is Lord Bolton in Game of Thrones, who long-term watchers might remember is... Um, the father of the bastard uh, of Bolton, the the real, I'm forgetting his name, but the real sinister prick who tortures everybody all the time and is just absolutely horrible. His dad, uh, the one that is like sort of a driving villain for around the middle of the series for a couple seasons, Michael uh, uh, Michael Hatton is playing Tam, uh, which is, I think from the, the glimpses we get in the trailer as Tam Althor, um, he's bringing something very, very different there uh, from... Uh, from from what the energy that he had in Game of Thrones, certainly, and I know I've seen him in some other BBC type productions, but he's mostly new to me. Um, well, I guess we'll we'll talk a little bit more about our plans for the show later this week. We are talking about the first book in the Wheel of Time series, The Eye of the World, the prologue, and chapters one through five. We will not be talking today about the special edition opening called Earlier Ravens. Uh, I mentioned that was only included in later versions of the book when it was split into two volumes to uh, in an attempt to appeal to the YA market. We'll probably get into the story behind Early, Earlier Ravens in a future bonus episode, why that happened, how it turned out, uh, and and how what went down with that whole edition, which is illustrated, which is pretty cool. Um, but for now, we will start at the beginning with the prologue. Um, already having gotten a bit of background about the series. So the prologue is called Dragon Mount. A lot happens in a couple of pages here, which is not something we can say for most of the chapters that we will be covering this week. In the prologue, a delusional man named Luz Theron walks through a destroyed palace amidst an earthquake. He is looking around and calling out for his wife and children. Doesn't seem to be registering all the dead bodies lying on the floor all around him and like these really janked up walls and strange sort of half-destroyed non-Euclidean geometry being described to us. Then a stranger shows up acting super evil. The stranger uses uh, some sort of power to force Luz Theron to remember that he, Luz Theron, killed everyone here, including his own family. Luz Theron can't handle the truth, so he blows himself up and creates a volcano. Uh, What did we think of this prologue? So... Fun fact, I actually, I didn't see your message in time that we weren't reading the, like, the opening, like, earlier. I don't even know what it's called because it's not a prologue, but the Ravens part. 
So I started mm. reading that and it almost turned me off completely because it was so freaking dull that this was like such a shift from that. I'm like, <laughs> wow, there's a lot happening. It's fine, like much, much more engaging. So it's just the such a drastic shift in tone and just like drama that um, it was a breath of fresh air for me and I kind of enjoyed it. And just the pacing was much better than that god awful Ravens story. Um, so I'm <laughs> glad they had that because I kind of like. If they hadn't had that and I'd gone from Ravens into the first chapter, that would have been pretty dire for mm-hmm. me because it would have just been more sheep and farmlands and everything. And probably would have turned me off completely from the idea, but that the prologue was a, a nice shift. Can you imagine being the, I'm not sure if it was a marketing person or who whoever at Tor, when they decided 10 years later to publish a kid's edition of these books to add a much longer, more boring opening at the beginning? Uh I guess because they're like, oh, well, kids are going to want to read about children at the start. And so, uh, well, uh, not to get too far into earlier Ravens, since Dan, since Dan, you and I are the only ones who have read it. But it really is just like, what about when these characters were kids and just doing nothing for, for a day and introducing us to uh, everything there? It's a strange, strange it so decision. Little. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's so trash. So this was, yeah, the prologue to me was a great way to start um, and much more engaging. So I, I enjoyed it. I can kind of echo what Dan said. I, I mean, I thought the prologue, it was a nice contrast with all the action to then our first couple chapters, which are really slow um, and steady and, and character building. Um, and, and I felt like the, the chapters one through 10 that we read had a lot of nice contrasts in them because then after those slow chapters at the beginning, you know, lots, lots seems to happen at the end, like the, you know, mm-hmm. the end of these chapters. So I thought like the prologue did a nice setup, like, oh, there's going to be action. Just hold on a minute. And, and then it did as promised. So I liked that. Yeah, I do find that has been a decision in, in the sort of Tolkien-esque fantasy that has come back time and time again, where, um, you know, we have, uh, I, there's no beating around the bush. It's the, it's going to be the elephant in the room with these chapters the first five chapters, not including the prologue here, are very Fellowship of the Rings. Are they? Am I? Am I the only one who just feels the incredible amounts of Shire energy and preparations <laughs> for fest- festivities? I mean, at this point, that's become like the, like the festivities and kind of just like a low key farmland fantasy opening is so cliche at this point. Um, I'm sure at the time it was a little more novel, like, but even then. When these came out, everyone's thinking Lord of the Rings. So regardless, it's not the most original yep. opening to a fantasy series. I was going to even say, like, even uh, Rand as a character, he, he like, I don't know. I, I felt like he wasn't even the most original character at the beginning because I was like, I've seen this before in Lord of the Rings, this homebody that is afraid of adventure. Um, but then he becomes much more likable. It's interesting that with future Lord of the Rings takes uh, and adaptations, now somebody correct me if I'm wrong, Fellowship of the Rings opens with, uh, with Bag End and with the preparations for the birthday party. And we just stay there for ages. Yeah. And when I, when I was a seven-year-old who my Dan, Dan mentioned our dad, uh, oh no, Dan didn't mention this, but, but other folks have mentioned, uh, the, and Keely, you mentioned the part your dad played in your developing love of ep- epic uh, fantasy and science fiction, or at least you're you're getting into the genre. Very much true for me as well. Um, my, my dad used to read us um, lots of fantasy stories before bed. He was a big fan of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, read The Hobbit to me and uh, and my my next uh, oldest brother, Josh, 
um, before bed. I adored it. And then, you know, I, I read it on my own when uh, a couple years later, and then as like a, a six or seven year old, I'm like, oh, I'm going to read the Lord of the Rings. I'm going to find out the rest of the story. And I make an effort seven times to get through the first 200 pages of the Fellowship of the Rings. And I fail and I fail and I fail again. And I then fail again trying to get through the Dom Bom Tom Bombadil stuff until I eventually make it and all the stuff starts ha happening. But every adaptation of Lord of the Rings since, or every other version of it, I think has made the, in hindsight, really smart decision to put a whole bunch of, of violence and action and context back at the beginning of the story. So obviously we have the, the two, we have the, um, uh, the Peter Jackson movies opening with, uh, they essentially, uh, they uh, they make up a prologue to be like Galadriel narrating like, hey, uh, we're going to be doing some parties in, in a farm village for a while. But just so you know, um, there was this huge war for the fate of the planet and armies of light and dark and elves and men aligned. And there was this big battle and magic ring and volcanoes and murders and and fates uh, and decisions of, of personal lust that that sealed the fate of of, of humankind and elves. Um, let's, and then there's also this Gollum character who seems really creepy and cool and interesting. Let's get some of that in here. Uh, so you have some action at the beginning. And then I, I feel like, uh, the other, other Tolkien adap adaptations have done this, this, that impetus is clearly driving. I don't know if Jordan originally wrote it with the prologue first. I suspect he did. Um, but if not, I could very much see some editor being like, yo, we have to, we have to have some action at the beginning. We're no longer in uh, the Tolkien, the Tolkien area, we, we need to get some, um, some hyper violence, uh, even really at the beginning and so, some inclinations that this is going to be a very dark story, even as it is a story of these big, um, traditional forces of light and darkness. Um, we get introduced, uh, right away to a symbol af after these descriptions of the palace groaning and crumbling, the symbol on Luz Theron's cloak, he catches his reflection in a mirror uh, it's a circle, half white and black, the color separated by a sinuous line. It meant something, that symbol. And um, readers might, or, any, or, or else somebody looking at the covers of these books might recognize what sounds like the, the Daichi or the, uh, the yin-yang um, symbol coming in right from the beginning here, uh, which, is, which is interesting given that this seems like such a European high fantasy right at the start. Did, did anybody notice, uh, pull that out or, or have thoughts on, thoughts on that at all showing up here in brief, or was there just too much going on to really fixate on that symbol appearing? I rem I remember that clearly as a kid, just from the marketing materials for the books and like the video game that you had mentioned, um, knowing that like the yin yang symbolism was in here, it is kind of jarring considering this is very European. Um, so it feels kind of like appropriate or n not appropriating, but it feels like they're just like, tacking that concept on to what otherwise is very much European and just like high fantasy in the traditional sense. And um, it's you mentioned or started to mention appropriation, which I think is something we'll probably have to get into as a topic at, at one point or another, what that means, um, what uh, how whether it applies to these stories and to what extent, what that looked like in 1990, because... There is something, and there's going to be something without getting into spoilers, going on with this first glimpse of what is a very, not just East Eastern, but 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 far East Asian um, originally um, set of philosophies and and ideologies ar around the Dai Chi. Um, I, I 
I'm not, I'm not Buddhist by any stretch. Um, I, I was raised as, as Dan was in, in a Buddhist country um, where that is not such a, a major or important symbol it, because it, it's, I think, um, and I don't want to speak out of my ass here, comes out of uh, originally more, uh, more of a Taoist uh, tradition or Taoist and um, only over uh, hundreds and thousands of years sort of became intermingled with strains, different strains of Buddhism and, and, and a number of different religions and, and philosophies uh, throughout, throughout Asia uh, and, at the, and at this point, the world. But it does, it does seem, it seems jarring, right? The idea of this, um, of what the Daiichi can mean in terms of, of this balance and, and of these aspects of life that are, they appear as black and, and white on this circle. Um, and you know, you've got like the teardrop one, one over the other, I'm making hand gestures that no one listening to this is going to be able to see. Um, but, but I think even those of us who are not familiar intimately with Taoism or who just know it from like, um, Chinese movies, for instance, which is a lot, a lot of my third hand experience with these like surface level experience with these ideas is not, is not an idea of, of good and evil in the cosmic sense or like ultimate good, ultimate bad, which is kind of the strains. I think we are going to be getting here and who this villain is because the villain is named Satan. The villain is named Shaitan, uh, which is a, um, a, a version of the Islamic name uh, for, uh, for, or, 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 you know, the old Aramaic and maybe, to, and maybe today also the, though I don't speak Arabic, maybe also the Arabic um, term for, for Satan. So what's going on here? We're setting up some very different and potentially not so compatible philosophies. And I, um, I guess we'll find out as time, as time goes on, whether there is a needle being thread here, or what those things have to do with each other. Um, this is, I think all of us have mentioned part of the overwhelm of these first ch chapters. We, we get introduced to Luz Theron, the Elon Morin, this, this, stranger in black, I believe who shows up, you know, he's like being real ominous. I think, I think he's wearing black, <laughs> uh, which is going to be a thing again, um, comes up and starts like being like, look at you. He says scornfully and like pontificating with as many proper nouns at loose there. And as he can fit in a paragraph and oh my God, uh, how many proper nouns are there <laughs> in, in these chapters? Um, did, did anybody just feel like you were getting run over or, or like washed over in a deluge of, of ideas here? Or were you able to follow along to some extent with impressions of, of this world? Was it too much? Um, well, you know, it's always a fine line to walk. But uh, I felt like the world building itself and even like some of the evil characters that come about, it, was, it wasn't too complicated. Like I, I could follow along. There were something we talk about in our writers group a lot is like having different names for the same thing and the same characters and that d definitely happens here and that can confuse a reader um and there was also just a lot of characters introduced at the beginning i kept getting bran and rand confused and i was like no rand is the main character uh yeah so um but but i felt like the world came out really clear to me it was just more some of the names that i needed to wrap my head around can we talk about how many characters have Anne in their name in the first few chapters? It was like, is there a land too? I think there was like a land brand. Yeah. Like, I don't even know. It was mm -hmm. ridiculous. It's like, I know that's realistic because I work, I was on a team that had like four other Dan's on it and even two Dan's with the same last name. So that didn't even work. So like, 
And yeah, it, that's very realistic, but it's also very annoying mm-hmm. for a reader to have to like keep up with that. <laughs> yeah. So there is a massive glossary at the back. Are, are each of you experiencing uh, what I did on the first read where I didn't want to flip to it because I'm afraid of spoiling major things about characters and plots by, by looking up at the names uh, there? Has anybody peeked back at that monstrosity? I didn't even so I didn't I know that. that there was one. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I didn't know that there was one. Um because I'm still so used to, I think, Caleb, I told you, I've been reading through uh, the Ursula K. Le Guin backlist. And mm, there's been, great, like, great no glossary or, like, explanation of anything. She just kind of throws <laughs> you in with these, like, massive world building, assuming you know what she's talking about. Um, and so I think Dune does have that in the back. So I'm still not assuming that anyone does that. So when you, you mentioned that, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> It also has uh, pronunciations, which, God, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> Speaking of all, of, all, of all these names, and the you talked about the, the an and the, uh, the uh, a sounds, Dan, like that so many of these names share. The number of diphthongs early on, the AEs and the, a, and the AIs, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a little extreme. And, and I think um, one thing will get a little easier as we without spoiling where we get at the end of these first set of chapters as we leave the two rivers names are very regional like hyper regional and hyper um et- etymologistic is that a word there there uh in, you can we will probably talk about how in in the two rivers once we get into chapter 1 um jordan is really really drawing heavily from irish celtic and gallic and gaelic uh, and Kimrick and like a lot of Welsh sounds and names like we're getting like, you know, real, real like um, Mariel, like Isle, Isles of of um, of what is today Great Britain in in there. And so I wonder to some extent if he just ran out of variants, like trying to stay within those pools. And then as we do travel out of there, it'll get a little easier because you start to realize like all the different geographic locales. You can kind of tell where somebody is from the name. Uh, he's very consistent about that. Um, in as he's drawing from these sort of real world places and making up his own fantasy areas, it might actually become a little easier. And as we leave some characters behind, but boy, I mean, I, I agree. It's so overwhelming at the beginning. And we're, and we're starting to talk a lot about the, the two rivers chapters. Uh, did anybody have any other thoughts on the, on this action pack prologue here and the world, world building we see here or anything around that? I think the thing that stuck out to me the most, like you, you talked about earlier, potentially um, saying like our favorite lines or quirks of Robert Jordan. And I mm-hmm. feel like I got beaten over the head with that his name is Luz Theron. Like every two seconds, he was referring <laughs> to him by name. I was like, I get it. He's got a name. <laughs> like, move on. That drives me absolutely nuts. So it's going to be interesting. I do that thing where like, if I notice that an author uses the same word, over and over Mm. i'm never gonna forget it and i'm just gonna start like marking where it comes in each chapter i think it was like i think it was pride and prejudice (laughs) that i read for the first time and realized that she was obsessed with the word like approbation i don't know how to say it (laughs) she is she loves (laughs) that word every two pages she would use that word and i was like i've never heard this word before in my life and you're making up (laughs) for the last 30 years in this book so i just i appreciated that it dove right into just like dude traumatized standing around bodies i am on board for that but then also like we get his name you don't need to tell us ten thousand times 
I didn't notice that in the prologue, but I noticed that with his father, because <laughs> unlike most authors, he doesn't use like Brand's father as like the way to address him. I almost forget that it's like a dad and son relationship because he just calls him Tam mm. a lot. And he, he doesn't refer to him as like like Brand's dad at all, like most authors would, or like like as a father figure. They don't refer they just use his name a lot. So it's like you, you keep seeing the names for characters, but doesn't actually have the relationship used a lot in ways of describing things outside of like um, actual speech. So that, that threw me off a little bit at first until I got used to it. And then like kind of, I don't know, something about that was a little strange to me because they, they, they mentioned it once in the beginning. And then after that, he, he always uses the name to refer to the character. Mm. Well, you mentioned Dan, uh, Rand and Tam. Um, who we haven't met yet in the prologue. So if we if we get into now chapter chapter one, uh, do, do you want to summarize for us real quick in a sentence or two of what happens in chapter one, An Empty Road? Between one and five, some things get a little blurry where the cutoff is. So I know it starts off with them on mm-hmm. a road. They're traveling to, and forgive me, I'm always like really bad with like names of characters and places, um, but they're on the road to this like village to pretty much sell. Like, Emmons Field. Emmonsfield. Thank you. Yeah. And they have like some barrels they're um, going to be selling there. So they're delivering those. And um, the main character, uh, Brand, sees like a dark figure, um, an ominous figure yeah, behind him. And apparently his father doesn't see it at all. And it's like a very wispy character who kind of just disappears after that sighting. But it kind of like leaves a distaste with um, our protagonist. So they keep going and eventually they hit the town. But I'm I'm trying to think, was there other stuff that happened in that first chapter? The first few are just like blending together in my brain because they're Mm -hmm. they're very slow and don't do a lot. I feel like a lot of what I remember is about the mysterious rider and just like Mm. the the feeling he invoked and, you know, uh, Rand kind of just doubting this feeling who was going to believe him. And that kind of like characterized some of the the people in his life, like who, who might believe him, who might not believe him. So yeah, that's, that's like what I kind of pulled from that chapter the most. Did I, did I call him brand? I, I'm going to have to catch myself. Well, there, like, there correct. is. Yeah, there is a brand, yeah, but like I meant, I meant Rand though, because he's the protagonist. So if, if I ever say brand, assume I'm uh, thinking Rand. No, same thing. I literally have it written down here, Rand, because I like can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like the Rand Corporation. And uh, unfortunately, like Ayn or Ann Rand, uh, which I I believe is not the reference at all because Jordan is is very much not an objectivist or or libertarian um, from some of the political stuff he get, gets into later on. But yeah, we we meet Randall Thor and his father Tim, uh, and then I think the only thing you didn't that we didn't cover uh, that you didn't cover Dan was that we do get introduced to Rand's friend Matram Cawthon, who goes by Matt, who has also seen the writer. I believe that happens in the first. Chapter. I thought Matt doesn't come. I think so. Second one. I could be wrong. Let me like. We can keep talking, but I'm going to like skim to the end of the first and see kind of where. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Go. Go ahead and fact check me. Yeah. Um, which uh, which becomes a thing over the next couple chapters, right? Where it seems like only only the teens can see uh can see the Dark Rider, um, whose cloak doesn't blow in the wind. Um, and getting, getting back to our elephant in the room, like, I mean, this is, this is clearly just a, a ring wraith, right? This is a Nazgul <laughs> yeah. show, showing up here on, <laughs> on the edge of the village. Like I knew it was going to be close to Lord of the Rings, but I was pretty surprised by that. I was like, it's so close to Lord of the Rings. 
Like, not even your, like, villain or kind of your, like, ominous threat is different. It's literally, like, a masked, like, dark cloaked antagonist with, like, no face. Or if he has a face, you can't see it, even though you can feel it. So it's not... I'm just surprised by how similar... Like, you didn't even bother trying to mask that at all. Yeah, it feels like we're very much in the territory of of homage. And, I, and Jordan has said that himself, that he set out wanting to write... He wanted to write, and I think he's not the only one who had this gold at all. He wanted to write an American Lord of the Rings with a twist and, and with, like, a major, major difference that we'll get to pretty soon, not this week, but that takes us in a wildly different direction. Interestingly, uh, especially since um, since Keeley brought up earlier Stephen King, this is a project shared by a lot of major fantasy and science fiction and horror writers of this era. Stephen King also set out to write his own American Lord of the Rings with a twist, uh, which is where we got the, the novel The Stand, uh, which has also been made into multiple miniseries, including a new one this past year. And of course, the twist there is that it takes place in modern day America, uh, rather than yield fantasy England or Wales or or Ireland, and that also there's a super flu which wipes out nearly all of humanity, which is a little bit of a departure, I would say, and then becomes then becomes the Lord of the Rings in its second half after that. So so here we get you know we get this very moody and t- and and tone setting opening where not a whole lot is happening. I did skip over. We had the. The classic sort of, we had the prologue and then between the prologue and first chapter, there's like some of those, here's passages from the Bible or from some sort of ancient text, the, the, uh, from Aleph Nitin Tyrin Alta Kamora, the breaking of the world, author unknown, the fourth age. And, uh, then something from, uh, uh, Charal or Karal Drianan Tekalamon, the cycle of the dragon. So immediately we're getting like, oh, we're getting like some sort of old tongue, like high fantasy speak here. Uh, which also sounds a lot like Kimrick um, and, and like the sort of thing you would have in really old King Arthur stories. Um, we also had some obligatory, highly detailed pencil maps at the beginning. I am a, I am for somebody who likes fantasy as much as I do. I hardly ever use maps, certainly not at the beginning of a book. I don't look at the maps at the beginning other than a quick glance. And I probably don't look at them again until way later if the story is getting way more complicated and I've seen the world and I want to know where things are. Are, are any of y'all uh, like, I know some people open the map and just pour through it at the at the beginning and, and try to look at the landscape. Anybody in that camp here? Did anybody even look at these? I mean, I looked at them like as I was flipping through, but yeah, I'm very much in the same thing where like, I'm like, oh, okay, typical fantasy, got a map. I don't know what any <laughs> of that means, so I'm not going to spend any time on it. I'll come back to it after. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like they used to be a lot more fascinating to me as a kid. Like, I would, like, buy all the, mm. like, the nice colorized maps and all. Like, I would geek out over series a lot further, and now I really couldn't care less if it was included or not. <laughs> just, like, looking at it once, I'm like, oh, that's a nicely drawn map, and then I kind of just move on. Same with the... I was going to pitch that to the group because I was wondering, you mentioned, like, the text they throw in there, like, the biblical or whatever, their scholarly text. Do you do you all actually read that or do you like my brain just glosses right over and then moves on? So I don't know <laughs> if other people do that or if they actually like read all like the little random quotes. My brain fully also glosses over and then I either, depending on my mood, intentionally go back and make myself like plod through it or other times in a different mood, I just keep going. I definitely read them as I go along because I'm also reading, well, Dune does the same thing. But then mm. I'm also right now about halfway through um, a book from the 1700s called The Monk, 
That is mm. a, it's supposed to be like the first horror novel ever written in English by Matthew Lewis back in the 1700s. Ooh. And Interesting. he does that as well. And it's like weird poetry. So sometimes I read it, but most of the time it's like, I don't know what the context is for this. This means nothing to me. Mm. So I'm going to read it again with the map. It's just in and out of my brain and I'll move on. And then maybe later something will click and be like, oh, that's what that was talking about. But I don't know the context and I'm afraid to spoil myself by trying to figure it out. So I just ignore it. Yeah. It's like flavor text. It's like when your brain, when there's so many things fighting for your attention in this day and age, it's like flavor text mm -hmm. is kind of like, unless I'm super obsessed with the series, it's just, it's not something I really like. It has to be very contextual to what I'm trying to progress through right now. So that just feels like such a departure that I don't know. It doesn't, I don't know if there's a lot of that in this series, but I, I just kind of skip over it. This day and age is really, that feels like a really good point. Um, yeah, the the context of like when I was a nine year old and then a ten year old and then you know so on and so forth throughout my teen years, catching up with this series and then waiting for the next book to come out, um, I f I feel like you know probably for most um, Americans and kids around the world, uh, at least some engagement with Harry Potter in the same way where the book comes out and and you're just like fixated and fascinated, you're pouring through, you cannot get enough. You, you get every detail of the story and then you have to wait another year or two for the next book to come out. So you're going to be like pouring through all those details and going back. But yeah, I do feel now and on this reread, I did exactly the same thing. I totally glossed like right past uh, the uh, the background biblical stuff and all these things that are, you know, when this was like my second high fantasy story, all of this still felt fresh and new and interesting in, in a way that now it is like, Yep, yep, Tolkien. Okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. Let's leave, let's leave the Shire. Let, and, and yeah, I feel it almost becomes illumination on the page near the opening, like an il extra illustration. Here's some, here's some ancient history. Not that we're discussing Dune, but I did just also read the first two Dune books. And in Dune, for some reason, I feel like it's very engaging when, when it's done there. I don't know why it seems to pertain more to me. Anyway, I, I think that's mm. an interesting difference in my brain for whatever reason. I, I'll let you know how I feel about that one because I'm, I'm gonna. I bought Dune at the same time about this. I'm trying. To, I'm gonna try reading it before nice. seeing the movie. So I'll let you know if that one. It seems to have a little more flavor from what I've seen so far. Of like Dune has like a, lot, a peculiar kind of like nature to itself that makes it stand out from other like sci-fi or fantasy. So mm -hmm. maybe it'll be more flavorful. But this felt very generic, just like standard fantasy quotes from like some passage or something. I feel like if all three of us are reading or have recently read Dune and are going to see the movie, we do have to do at least a Dune bonus episode, <laughs> right? Getting getting into the novel and the adaptation. Um, <laughs> I might even, Eric, my partner, has been for years wanting to have us watch the, the Sci-Fi Channel Dune miniseries, which went up through the first three books, uh, I believe. I've seen the first season of... Um, I'm one of the rare, the only people you're... Uh, maybe more now, but pre-internet, one of the few people you'd meet who really likes the David Lynch Dune movie and thinks it's kind of a mess and a disaster, but an interesting and visually mesmerizing one, even if it like, you know, is trying to cram way too much novel into that little space. Um, but yeah, here we're not, we're not getting at the beginning other than that prologue, maybe any, any of the unique things. It, it's all so front loaded with, again, like the Shire and old sort of feeling like, yeah, places in the British Isles that, that we've, that we've seen before. Um, so the thing that I found, I guess, as we get into chapter two here was that I, I was sort of able to start enjoying this as, as in like a pastoral way. And I don't know 
if it was just me settling nostalgically back into these characters and to Emmons Field and to feeling like this weird comfort in there, in the in the simplicity of it and just like, wow, I, I you know, this is I could see this being incredibly boring to read for the first time now, although I feel like there's also Jordan does a pretty good job for me of of bringing out details. Um, and maybe it's just that that we've had them too many times uh, over. Um, I don't, I don't know. Uh, Keely, um, do you, do you want to tell us that I think it's only probably a sentence or two worth of plot that happens in chapter two strangers. Yeah. So I think it's, it's more focused on Rand and his friend, Matt. And then um, they kind of talk to each other about, you know, seeing this writer. And I don't, is it that chapter where they start saying that Matt is basically a prankster. And so mm-hmm. they don't know if anyone would believe him. Um, and then I don't know how to pronounce it. It is Moiraine is how I've been saying it. Um, so she shows up and she's like this very fancy, like regal mm-hmm. person that no one really knows like who she is. They just kind of know that she's here. And then there's like a guy that's following her. But there's no explanation really provided. So this will be our first pronunciation game. Officially, <laughs> it's uh, it's sort of pronounced the French way, but not quite. It's like moiraine. Um, and <laughs> oh, interesting. We'll find we'll find we'll find out it is actually pronounced the French way. But we're we're in Mary we're in Mary like British Isles uh, here in this section of the world in, in Emmons Field Two Rivers. So they they go with moiraine according to Jordan and the. And the glossary. And I assume the TV series, though, we'll see. They might have, might have gone their own way. Um, uh, yeah, so we get we get Moraine showing up, giving each of the boys a silver coin. I, I quite liked that part. Like, I feel like that was when I kind of, like, clicked into the book for the first time. When, let's see if I can say it, Moiraine. I don't know. Is that close? Moiraine. It works. It works, too. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's just an interesting figure. And when she's giving them this coin and we... We kind of get the idea that, um, you know, they want it, but they know there might be some baggage along with taking it um, and they're scared. And I I felt like that was a moment where I was like, okay, I'm interested in what's going on here. So that was kind of like a pulling moment for me. It's it's fascinating. It is interesting they bring her in, but I honestly, she almost felt like that cliche, like, like pixie character almost where all the men are very fascinated by her right out the door. And I really don't like that character. It's like, she's so graceful. And like, she like glistens or whatever she, her hmm. feet or like her footsteps are so light and her cloak, <laughs> like kind of dances in the wind or something. It just felt like really like, Oh, and all the men are like, kind of like, I don't know, like their, their jaws are dropped or they don't know how to respond around her. And it's such a, like, <laughs> like a fairy character kind of vibe. So I didn't get that. Like now that we're talking, I'm sort of seeing that there's like, could be sinister elements to that or, a more complex character, but I saw it as just like really, I don't know that like, Oh, it's a super beautiful woman or like very fascinating woman that's mysterious to all these men. And they don't know how to reason. Like they don't want to use the gift she gave them or like spend it. Um, Mm. Did anyone else think of um, the red lady at all? When in relation to her, uh, uh, Melisande from game of Thrones. I just, I don't know why, but I, I kept thinking like, it's not quite right, but it keeps popping into my head, but maybe it's sort of what you said, Dan, in that she's like a very, like, she comes in with this like strange sexual force and everyone like admires yeah. her. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> That's a great way of describing it, like her. strange sexual force. 
I definitely uh, was kind of imagining her more as like a Galadriel, where like mm. she there's basically like a like a halo around her whole body. It's like it's very like yep. Morticia <laughs> Adams lighting, where it's like it's very soft, soft but focus. like yep. yeah, but then also that like I'm hoping that she's gonna have like crazy amount of power and could kill everyone if she wants to because I love that concept so much of this like everyone thinking that she's one thing and then she's like actually I could just kill all of you right now so I'm that's kind of where my brain went because that's what I hope happened <laughs> yeah I, I think for me it was immediately coming right off of Lord of the Rings but uh save Keely immediately I'm like oh she's like if Galadriel came to the two rivers instead of Gandalf at the very beginning of the story kind of um and then we we almost kind of get other aspects of Gandalf split off into different characters was my perception um without getting too far ahead of these chapters but but we have you know like um fellowship kicks off with Gandalf is pretty much the only outsider right he comes people sort of know him but he's like a, he's a weird wizard stranger and they they nobody quite trusts him except for the baggin the baggins and, and all that who he's good friends with but he's also like the fireworks person and the news of the world person and like the kids are fascinated by person and the kids gives gifts to children person. And that sort of gets split here. We have like three different characters showing up from the outside of, of the two rivers all at the same time, um, which somehow in my head, I, I, I'm realizing now why I did this. I thought this was a midwinter festival because it feels so cold and it feels so frozen and wintry. But we learned that Beltine is actually... It's like the Maple Spring Festival, right? Like it's supposed to be coming a spring, but we're still stuck in a deep winter here. People have some people have ominous feelings about um, about how long the winter has been around. Can relate to that too hard living in PA. <laughs> <laughs> Can or can't relate to Can. Hard. Yeah, the, I feel like winter has oh, kind yeah, of just yeah. pushed into spring at this point. So like that was. <laughs> Probably the most relatable elements of the initial first couple <laughs> chapters is like, oh, it's Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania with some, yeah, yeah, you can get like the uh, the the old German country wrinkles in there. <laughs> and you get a lot of, we, we're getting a lot of those small town personalities and politics in here. Katie, do you want to give us a quick chapter three, The Peddler recap? Sure. So our, uh, our peddler comes along named, let's see if I can do his name nicely. Padan Fane, um, and he has this news that everyone gathers around to listen to um, that a man has proclaimed himself the Dragon Reborn. Um, and I guess this is our first hint that like things maybe are going awry elsewhere and, and could potentially come to threaten uh, this town, maybe. Um, and we also get our little group of, uh, I don't know, like they're, they're like the little crew of, of youngsters that are going to carry on the <laughs> journey um, coming together here. So we have Rand and Matt uh, and Perrin um, and Egwene. Egwene? Yeah. <laughs> Egwene, officially? Egwene. Okay, got it. Egwene. Um, and let's see, uh, is it Perrin and Egwene that, that are sort of, Think, thinks it's all being made up and are the more mm. skeptical ones. <laughs> and Perrin has to be an homage to Peregrine Took, right? Uh, I didn't realize that until Katie was just reading like or reading out the characters' names. I'm like, oh, <laughs> and that is pretty similar. I also thought it could have been a combination of Merry and Pippin. 
Oh, yeah. It was like, I, how can I be more on the nose? <laughs> Got it. And the, the character would fit, I think, too. So that, yeah, that works. Yeah. It's very like you can copy my homework, but make it your own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think we're going to get past that for, for a few chapters. Um, we are until, until we get out of the two rivers, at least, because, yeah, we are, it's, it, it's, we, we get the feel of, I forget who the, um, the antagonistic Hobbit family is that are always on, always on Bilbo's case and like the busybodies and, and nobody in town quite like, likes them. They're not the Tooks. They're the, um, the whoever they are, but we get that here with like the Coplins and Congers, which were reminded every couple pages that, that are just real in everybody else's business all the time and trying to stir up shit. And, and um, we're also like getting thrown in here, big bits of world building uh, stuff. Like we, we, we have, we get people talking about the Dark One. You know, we we brought up Shayatan already, who they're they're doing the he who must not be named thing, right? The uh, let, you know, you don't want to draw the evil eye, so you don't call him Shayatan. You call you call him the Dark One or or something else, any number of a dozen names. Um, and then the other thing we have religiously, it seems like the light is kind of what people refer to. Uh, the the so you know we got our we got our light, uh, we got our dark. They do seem, I think, a good bit more into that and into this religion and it, or whatever it is or into this cosmology of the outside world in a way where the hobbits were so insular they had like none of that like bilbo's like the only one who knows anything about elvish lore kind of and even he only knows like a little bit and nobody and nobody there knows like uh any of that stuff going on and we get all these symbols here there's so many symbols we had we had the daichi showing up again the the yin yang black and white we have um we have the the ring which is going to be escapable that Moraine's wearing. Uh, she's got um the great serpent, an even older symbol for eternity than the wheel of time, which I think is on most of the book spines. It's like the wheel. It's like a wheel and then a big Ouroboros serpent like eating its own tail. Um, at the end, which is another mythic symbol that to me feels like kind of detached from this whole abrahamic religion like christianity islam judaism uh stuff that shaitan invokes for me uh and and some of the backstory we're getting here and this seems like something else entirely too right like the eternal return stuff and and, and the aurora serpent did these details pop out at all or am i just drawing things that i only know are lore significant did did, did they were they a thing for anybody reading through here I will say I'm looking it up while you're talking and the logo that uses the serpent like the ring serpent looks incredibly similar mm-hmm. to the Game of Thrones logo. <laughs> so they're not being subtle about like kind of tying that in. But overall I do love I don't know growing up remembering the serpent like eating itself with the wheel. I thought that was a unique symbol to the series. Um and kind of ties back into more of like that like Abraham period and like kind of like the biblical referencing there with snakes are used a lot. That that seems interesting mm. to me. Oh, you th- you mentioned the wheel thing with Game of Thrones. Uh, you think Game of, Game of Thrones was riffing on that? Because that actually comes out six years later um, after the Eye of the World. At this uh, point. I'm talking about the show. So if you look at the show, like the Wheel of Time's show logo, it's very similar to the style of like the Game of Thrones one. I don't know. Um, oh, yeah. Maybe it's just yeah the, they, cha- the they did change it up a bit, didn't they? Yeah. It's like it's got that steel yeah. look and it's darker and it's not they're mm-hmm. not using the serpent with the wheel. They're just using the I think it that's what her ring looks like. It's just the, the circular serpent like the Ouroboros eating mm. itself. That look that just feels very Game of Thrones to me. So they're kind of like pulling away 
and kind of really kind of honing in on that market. We uh, are also getting introduced to Padden Fane, uh, the peddler here, and and uh, we mentioned the dragon reborn and all this stuff going on in the rest of the world that's freaking everybody out uh, with a false dragon. Uh, what what did you what did you all think of these developments? Um, were, were you able to make any sense of them in context or what any of this means? This is not a good answer, but I feel like once once the Trollocs come along, I sort of forget about this, and uh, I just sort of stopped <laughs> stopped contemplating um, like the dragon reborn and this false dragon idea. But um, but now I'm now I'll be thinking about it again. <laughs> I definitely thought like as soon as they said dragon, I was like, okay, well that's what the guy calls lose. Mm-hmm. I made Lose fun of the, yep. yeah. I made fun of the fact that he called him his name so many times. I can't remember it. Yeah, like it it ends the prologue calling this dude who blows himself up as dragon, and I was like, oh okay, that must be why the prologue was there. But it it, it still very much felt like you know the the presence of Gandalf implies that mm. there's drama happening outside <laughs> of your small town, <laughs> like. We see that over and over, even in books like that have nothing to do with Lord of the Rings or anything like that. It's just like, you know, people don't think outside of their small towns. The world's literally falling apart. So let's have someone come in and be like, hey, guys, I'm going to rock your worldview and tell you everyone's dying. <laughs> yeah, it definitely feels like we're we're playing in that sandbox here to me. Um, I, I also... I, I wonder to what extent, oh, you know what, this is this is related to those little bits and pieces at the beginning. Um, to what extent, like, I- any any of the prophecy stuff uh, feel feels like it's tying in yet? I think there's just been too much information, and I think the first time I read this as well, to really, really even, I, I'm, you know, when I'm reading it the first time, I, I'm just, like, pouring through and, and, trying to get th- and trying to get through the plot and want to get all that in. And then at the end of the book, coming back in hindsight and putting all this stuff together, I think, um, and reading it for the second time, it's much more of that. Uh, and we do get introduced to all these big players besides the Dragon Reborn, who we're told will go mad and die. That men who channel the power always go mad and then waste away and die. So, right, that, that sounds, like, maybe connected to what happens at Luz there and at the beginning. We're told only... Women can touch it. Only women can um, can wield the one power, which was maybe the first inclination uh, that there's going to be a lot going on with gender in this world. I, I, well, uh, uh, Dan raised something earlier in terms of perceptions of Moraine's character, um, but that's going to be a very there's going to be some interesting motifs there, and maybe maybe some of them are going to come into. What we see with the Daiichi symbol as well, and what um, what the difference between the black and the white symbology are in in, Tao- in Taoist thought. Um, but uh, but for for now, all we really know are there's these eyes Sedai, which I'd I'd love to hear what everybody's pronunciation of of the of these women were initially. Uh, <laughs> uh, Katie, what what was your did, did you come to anything like that? Because I certainly different didn't the first time I read. I, I was saying I or A Sedai in my head, like I Sedai or A Sedai, kind of alternating whenever my brain decided. <laughs> Who we uh, learned are from this place called Tarvalon uh, or Tarvalon, depending who you ask. I, b- I believe the official pronunciation is Tarvalon, but they pronounce it differently in the video game and in other places. So uh, I think m- minds will differ uh, on 
on this subject, who are, who are riding out to defeat the dragon. Um, so we know that they're capable of some sort of, uh, some sort of power that we really haven't had described in, in much detail yet, I don't think at this point. We hear about some faction called the Children of the Light, and there's basically nothing said. Just all these names and factions and, and places being thrown out willy-nilly as, as a false dragon is raising up an army, and they don't really tell us what a dragon is, al al although we seem to get the sense this is something that happens from time to time. Somebody calls himself a dragon and starts to like get a whole bunch of people rallying around them to build an army and do question mark. Uh, I don't know if we really got from uh, from this section and that some of them can wield the power and some can't. Uh, and this current one can. Right. We're told. Uh, but that's impossible. Men, men, men aren't, aren't able to do that or they should or they shouldn't be doing it because they're going to go crazy and kill everyone. Um, so uh, so we get something something interesting going on there. And then there's just lots more of the, this conversation with the peddler, with with Pat and Fane. Um, we're introduced to, I think, here. Um, uh, we, we talked briefly about Egwene Al Alver, uh, who, who thinks that, um, that Rand and Matt are making all this stuff up and per and Perrin, uh, Perrin Ibarra, I think it is, or whichever one, uh, Perrin also thinks they're making all this up. And I think we get, um, either introduced to or talked about Nynaeve here, the, the village wisdom, who's another figure. I'm sure we had a lot of different pronunciations <laughs> on, uh, on Nynaeve. Uh, she also shows up. Um, just like a whirlwind tour of, of the, the figures around this town. Um, did anyone else have any thoughts on, on chapter three here? I think to me, I, I think I was pronouncing it the same way, Katie, I was calling her Eggween. <laughs> um, that character was to me, very Hermione, like just tired of Ron and Harry. Mm. And so it, it didn't matter really what they said they saw. She would just be like, I know better than you. Clearly your experience is invalid because it's who you are. Like that's kind of <laughs> how she came across to me. I wasn't like a super big fan of her right away. Um, but I also am not a super huge fan of something that happens in so many books across so many genres and age groups is people not believing when the kids are saying something just for mm. the sake of them being kids. And it's like, I think that says more to my psyche than anything else. But like, it that just such a trigger mm -hmm. for me and be like, oh, of course you don't believe the kids. Like, who cares what they say? You know, you're only raising them to speak their mind. And when they do, you don't care or listen. But it's like, so that hit a nerve where I was just like, oh, I hate this egg lady. <laughs> <laughs> beyond that, beyond it being like an annoying trigger, perhaps, I think it's also like a little bit of an easy way out plot wise sometimes so maybe that also mm. is what annoys you about it <laughs> that's very true yeah i love the name egg lady <laughs> it's just gonna be the way <laughs> just egg for sure maybe <laughs> luckily we don't i think we don't have to maybe it's because i read the first five chapters in one sitting I didn't. I, I also hate that trope a lot the when you're just on and on with nobody believing the characters or insisting they're seeing something um, but within, but it's by the end of chapter five, I think some of the, the adults are at least taking seriously, uh, to, to some extent, the things that they're saying, like the moment they're, oh wait, other kids saw this too. Okay. You know, we need to, we need to do something in some cases. Cause I, I think I, I cannot tolerate it when that sort of thing is like throughout a whole narrative or a whole story where just nobody is believing, uh, the, the, the goddamn children of dairy or, or <laughs> whatever, wherever town the, the killer clown is, uh, is, uh, just rending through all their friends. Yeah, I was I was also glad that it was a uh, 
kind of quickly verified. I was like, oh, phew, yeah. <laughs> and they, they did give good reason for this one, though. It was like, I mean, it kind of did just disappear. They've talked about the woods getting darker and things kind of like, like wolves and stuff appearing. And then they also really established that he is his friend, Matt, is the boy who cries wolf. So like even the protagonist mm-hmm. is like, I wouldn't believe him if he said he's like, it's almost a detractor versus <laughs> like helping me by having him also have seen it. So they kind of explain that away pretty well, though, because he seems to be like a, a stupid kid that like kind of pulls pranks on everyone. So that like that trope was pretty early established. And I do think they they don't linger on that to your point, Caleb, that it's like they fortunately only have that for like a chapter or two before they like the adults are sensible and they're like okay yeah we we totally believe you we're just trying to figure out how to address this since we apparently can't see it does that start to come in um in chapter four the gleeman which i guess i'll, I'll summarize um we get uh, something called a gleeman or a glee man showing up uh named tom marilyn whose name you would probably not know from the spelling because it looks like thom or or, or thome or something uh, but officially, I think Tom Tom Marilyn, um, who is this uh, sort of bardic figure in a cloak covered in, in tattered, uh, covered in tattered, colorful patches that are sewn on it, uh, who seems to be some sort of all in one entertainer, bard, jester, historian, juggler, tum- tumbler um, figure who everybody is excited to see and and this is and shows up and recruits Egwene and the boys to help him with his act uh, or at least Egwene if i'm remembering correctly and there's a whole bunch of oh, you know I, I need a pretty girl to help me with my uh with my magician show de- demonstrations type thing i always pick the prettiest girl in town which is potentially very creepy uh, given the age ranges of these characters um i think uh i forget if Egwene is 17 or 18 but but Almost all. Oh, yeah, this is a this is an important plot point. Almost all these kids are like exactly the same age, right? Like born within a couple of weeks of each other. We we find out right here. I think they're are they 17 or 18? I should know this. I think they're 18. Um, may, But uh, if nobody else caught it, I, maybe that's a detail that we that we haven't gotten exactly yet. Um. So we get this entertainer who everybody's excited to see. And I feel like this is part of where the Gandalf stuff got split up. You know, Gandalf is the one who shows up as a peddler. And we had our peddler, Padden Fane, already. And he also does the entertainment and the fireworks that are the only reason uh, the town is excited to see him, even though a lot of people really don't like the the mysterious wizard showing up. So, And I feel like Padden Fane and Tom Marilyn are both filling parts of that. Everybody's excited to see and hear the juggling and the songs and the dance. And he, and he starts doing a demonstration with a little bit of lore and like these old stories and tales from the world. And then Moraine returns, which spooks Tom away almost immediately for some reason, at which point Tam decides that he and Rand will return to their farm from the night. Uh, did, did I miss anything? Is that, that pretty, there, there's like a lot of conversations in this chapter, right? And a lot of more characters introduced. I was just going to say, I think you start to meet more of who the players are in the small town in relation to each other. Um, like the mayor, oops, sorry, like the mayor and everyone, um, which is just more people for me to not remember their <laughs> names. <laughs> um, one thing, one thing I did notice that Robert Jordan tends to do is to describe how like imposing someone is, he describes them as wide. And I like, he's, he did that at like once or twice where I was like, mm-hmm. is he saying this person is fat and being really rude? Or like, what is he doing? Cause I think it was, um, the guy 
he's yeah, not I like a. I, um, yeah, I couldn't figure out with that description if that's what he meant. If they were just like wide and kind of just like actual stature, like if he was just saying they were mm-hmm. like heavyweight, or if it was just more of a like the appearance they kind of gave off for the impression. Yeah, because I think is it like the blacksmith who's supposed to be like huge, mm-hmm. but with the tree trunk arms. Like what? Yeah, like when he first described him, I was like, like. I don't really understand what I'm supposed to be picturing here. Like, hmm. am, am I picturing new God of War Thor or like, you know, <laughs> Marvel Thor? Like, what am I picturing? Um, so just the use of the word wide kept throwing me off. Because sometimes it means wide shouldered here, right? Like, sometimes it seems yeah. like it's, um, I I think probably most of the times, I think he's saying it's just somebody who is it, here. It feel or the way I registered, it was like the characters who are jacked and stocky um to some extent and i i want to say that it doesn't necessarily mean they're fat because i feel like jordan will get a lot more explicitly fat phobic when he gets oh great fat if i'm if i'm remembering (laughs) correctly um which uh i you know one of those uh, like unavoidable things we'll have to talk about i i think he will i mean there are there are lots of main characters um who are fat over time, but there's certainly like a lot of this slender and beautiful, like the, these things go together kind kind of things. I think we even get that description about Egwene somewhere near the beginning from, from someone that, um, and those things being associated. We also get, um, do we get, am I right? Our first fantasy racism here, uh, with in world when, when, um, the mayor is like, uh, Oh, it's like tell, telling Ken to shut the fuck up. And he tells him, uh, be uh, be quiet, Ken. Stop acting like a black veiled Aiel right at the beginning. There is that our first one of those, which at least in that instance it seems like you know it's a, one of those deliberate like this is a way in which uh, they are be they're racist within the world within the fiction as opposed to Robert Jordan's uh, own proclivities. Um, I I I don't know if we're also going to have uh, like uh, h- how much. How much did any of the besides the mentions of, okay, there's a there's this great power in the world and only women can use it. And there are like these kind of like some people call them witches who who, um, have what seems like this almost um, well, I I don't want to spoil anything, but they have a reputation. Right. And a pretty dark one around here. That's there's definitely obviously so many fantasy and, and fairy tale and ancient genre tropes about like what it means to be a witch or what it means to be like a woman of power in, in, in the world. Uh, and especially in like a throwback old fantasy world, uh, like that, what did, um, what did everybody, um, and, and, and especially the, those of us in this group who are, who are women think about the, the gender politics so far, either in world as we see them or in terms of Jordan's writing, has anything really stood out yet or where, where are we on, on that? I think this will get to the question. Have we mentioned the wisdom yet? Uh, Nynaeve? Mm-hmm. We have. Okay. Yes. So I, I feel like one of the first ways that I noticed is it seems like there's kind of the, like the council and the mayor, which are these like men of many words, but not much power. And then we have like the, the organization of like these wisdoms that are always female and have this much uh, kind of greater power and, they're both like belittled and respected and feared. Um, so I think that's interesting. And it's hard to decide if that's any kind of um, movement away from a stereotype or not. 
Um, but but it, I think that's like what first drew my eye to gender roles was, was that. Yeah, that's kind of the, the same for me. And then also once like, I don't want to spoil it, but once more happened, the role of certain wives in that gets mm. brought up a lot. Like, oh, just wait till she finds out. And I was like, okay, so like, you're actually kind of scared of her. You actually acknowledge that she has power, but just, you know, stereotype men, you know, husbands talking down the wives, you know, that that comes up a lot. So it's nothing new, kind of a bummer to see it happen again. But it's like, mm. also have to remember, like, this was this is not a new book. So I can't fault on it a lot for not being, you know, progressive and not stereotypical about everything. Although it's also not a particularly ancient book either, right? It's like ni- 19... 1990, um, we have at this point 30 something years, uh, 40, no, it must be 40 something years, right? Of, of commentary on the Lord of the Rings and, and all, and all the genre stuff around that, um, Conan, the barbarian stories are written starting in, in the thirties and lots of people eventually commenting in, in the beginning of, um, uh, of the second wave feminist movement. There's like so, so much literary critique around, you know, like we, we all like beginning with like the Conan style damsels in distress and like, um, like, like bar babes essentially are, are as they're like women who are just solely depicted as objects in a lot of early 20th century fantasy and as prizes to be won going through like the Tolkien high fantasy thing where women just barely exist. <laughs> and granted he's like writing like this sort of, a story that is a, seems very drawn from his experiences in the trenches in World War One and a lot of themes there and in war, but where women do exist, they're kind of um, they're usually otherworldly creatures as well, like the these fae beings like Galadriel, like in the forest, who aren't even really they're still like really gendered heavily, and we get um, other characters like marveling after their beauty and everything, but they have they do have power, they have like loads of power, and there's this um, remove from them. So yeah, I, I don't know. That's a rambling way of saying we get here to 1990. Um, there's even there's things that seem interesting in the vocabulary. Like like uh, at first I thought it was just the wives being called good wives and good wife is like a term that they use all the time. Though they do also start to call the men good men. That that sort of reminded me of um, the Crucible or sort of like this mm-hmm. sort of, like a puritanical village era <clears throat> like like titles around. Well, wasn't that that was the sort of thing that 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 story does right where where the the you have like the good good folk and the good wives and uh and titles of that sort given to ones around um did you have did you have any thoughts dan on on the stuff we've seen so far and the, the women's council versus the um the village is it the village village council and the women's circle am i getting that right so even in this village we have like power split into these two gendered organizations and then we have the Aes Sedai, where there's only women. Yeah, um, it's. I feel like we get the council a lot more than we get like the women's circle. So it's, oh, but like right off the bat, one of the most disappointing things to me is like I always thought this was a very female like led and very like female centric fantasy series, but like it opens mm. up with the cliche. It's like a young teenage guy, um, for the first five or six chapters, and there's it's very heavy on the like men being the center of focus, and the women are more of like side characters that come in for a little bit so like i don't know i for some reason thought the protagonist was a woman um and i don't know if it shifts views later on but like the tv show from the trailer if i remember right it it seemed like i don't even remember like a main guy being like kind of present there so it's 
I don't know if they're doing that now to kind of cater to the general like waves of like what audiences are interested in or like kind of the diversity that they're pushing for within larger studio productions. But I don't know if it, it felt very female led and all the stuff I remember about Wheel of Time was more around like a central figure of and like women and like men pushed to the side, which I always thought was fascinating. But then this felt like very, very much led by men so far. So I don't know. I'm wondering if that changes later on. I I have a inclination that may may be from Caleb that we're gonna get much more on uh, Egg Egwene's perspective. But I one thing that you said it is interesting because nonetheless she's introduced like through Rand's point of view sort of and like we get her first mm. as this like sort of love interest that he's like sort of concerned about. So it's it's interesting that even if and when the perspective shifts and we sort of get a lot more of what she's seeing in the world, we did still see her first through like th- this male gaze kind of. It's the same thing with Maureen, that it's not just her. It's also this dude that's like following behind her mm. with a sword, like ready to fight. Like any <laughs> any time that there is a female presented character, it's always, but there's a guy with her. So like, it's not just, you know, the mayor's wife. It's that it's, the mayor's mm. wife like it's not just her name it's her attachment or relationship to men around her yeah and it's very different I, I know both of you didn't read the ravens but it's fascinating that they open up with um Egwin being the central figure of that so that's why it kind of misled me when she's not so that that felt very mm. modern in terms of like like uh tomboyish like like what are they 12 in that one but it's just like doesn't want to like mm-hmm. consider dating. She wants to go like explore and all that. So it like really led with that. Like, I don't want to like fit into kind of the normalized expectations of, of growing up and, and being a woman. So it's like, that was, that kind of felt on cue. And now I'm like, wait, so this was, added, I didn't see your text and I didn't actually know the background. So I was like, wait, so this was added on way later. I don't even know when was I like early two thousands, late two thousands. So I was like, okay, this is kind of playing to the time. So I'm wondering if that, writing style is completely different than the rest of the book. So I know we'll get into that later, but it's just, it's fascinating to me how different that feels from what we've read so far. I, I think that is very possible that that was on the minds of, of the folks encouraging that edition. Um, I, I wonder how much comes about because simply because this series and, and this, fir- fir- this first book, but especially the first trilogy changes so much as Jordan is writing it. And um, this is part of a, maybe a bigger issue where he originally pitched this book as a trilogy to, to Tom Doherty, uh, who was you know, run, running tour at the time. And Tom Doherty's like, oh, I know Robert Jordan. I, I, uh, uh, he is not going to finish this entire story he described to me within a trilogy. I'm going to sign him onto a contract for, I want to say it was either five or seven books uh, that he signed him on for in case it did not wrap up within the first trilogy. This is something, uh, hopefully without spoiling anything, something Keely and I uh, were, were chatting about off, off the air. Within a few books, Rand is about the fifth place point of view character in terms of word count uh, oh, wow. throughout the story, without the story. Um, so by... By the time we're really getting underway in the first arc, it is really stretching it to call him the point of view character. Um, He certainly is for most of this novel, most of the first book. And this is, I think, something 
you, uh, which it makes it very interesting to watch the trailer, like you said, Dan, which um, shows a lot of Rand, but it's Moraine narrating, and we and it's very much about it's 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 only things that we cover in the first ten chapters here, really. Um, but it is give it is tipping hand as to where the focus of this is going to go and to what's going on in the greater world. And I don't want to absolve I don't want to absolve Jordan of this at all. I don't want to say that this series is not of um doing this thing in a very very clear way right from the beginning like you like you said Katie where we're uh, yeah we're getting introduced to all these women may- maybe um but it's all through Rand's perspective it's all like this uh, this um teen this teenage boy and it's just uh, how how he feels about everybody and that is coloring how we're thinking about them for a while uh before we start getting into other people's heads and I and I'll tip my hand that Rand is far from my favorite point of view character i don't think he's even in my top five point of view characters which is handy since he eventually falls out of the top five uh who even like their perspective is shown but i don't even want to share who my favorite is since it could spoil <laughs> spoil things at, at this point but suffice it to say i think like the unfortunately we are going to spend a, a while longer in in rand's in rand's head and only rand's head i think um, before we start getting out of it. And that is going to color everything in the intro here. And yeah, like, I think everybody's raised. He really, it, it's just such a tired trope in 2021 of this, this tabula rasa chosen one that he almost feels like he could be leading up to be. We maybe don't know if that's the case because we find out right away, oh, wait a minute. There, there's something about all the kids in this village that were born around a certain time. So that's maybe muddying the waters right away that um, but the fact that we're in 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 his head and we find out some things about him very quickly that feel like a sort of now utterly done to death, um, maybe even YA fiction trope about something about his past that we learn in the next next set of chapters. I don't know. We'll see. We'll uh, we'll, we'll see where things go. Um, But I don't think this is going to be any anybody's last time being frustrated about about uh, limitations of perspective and, and maybe some of the ways also perspective is going to reflect very heavily on on gender in these books, um, which brings us to the, the last chapter in this first section where ev- everything starts happening. We get kind of our inciting incident here in a way um, with chapter five, winter night. Uh, Tam shows Tam, who's Rand's uh, father, as far as we know, shows Rand a hair and Mark's sword and starts to tell him something. A dozen monsters attack. The suddenly we've got monsters like literally rushing into the room, breaking down the door. We've got Trollocs, these like part human, part animal creatures, like like beast folk of some sort. Tam fights them. Rand barely escapes. One of the monsters wounds Tam. Rand sneaks back into the house to save Tam. Manages to sort of accidentally kill a Trolloc uh, that that is trying trying to kill him. Um, a lot of things going on. Uh, what, what, what do y'all think of, uh, winter night here and, and where suddenly violence bursts back into the plot? Why well, I, I intentionally did not look up. I'm very curious as to what the internet has portrayed Trollocs to look like. So I was like holding off till this, <laughs> till we did the podcast. So I'm going to Google them now and see if it matches what I was thinking. Cause I was like, I didn't expect Willton to have like more like the high fantasy elements of like half human, half like creature characters i thought it was going to be strictly more human centric um with like some magic mm. like magic systems kind of thrown 
So, okay, yeah, this is sort of ma- matching what I was thinking. They're like, they're almost like Minotaurs or something. Well, there's, so, I feel like maybe it's changed now, but um, at least in the 90s and 2000s, I felt like every fan art you saw of a Trolloc looked c- completely different almost. And every artist on the covers uh, of the different books in the series and the il- illustrations. Do they, do they shift in, like, are they, are they almost like a non, um, I'm spacing for the word right now, but like. Do they have different, like, do they all take different forms? Because they talk about feathers, and that threw me off, because I'm like, are there some more, like, bird-like Trollocs, and do they not all follow the same, like, are they not all furry and kind of follow the same appearance? Uh, well, we have we have more than one described here, right, where I think um, one of the ones that, that Rand encounters, like, one, like, he's, I think he does talk about or describe it and said some of them have snouts, some have, like, beaks, and some have like wolf muzzles uh, is the, the one that attacks him. Does that have like a wolf, like John kind of facial appearance? I want to say so. So yeah, my, my impression is certainly each one is kind of a different set of an, a different animal hybrid or something going on there. I, I want to say when I first read this as a, as a kid, immediately I am picturing the first one looking like beast of beauty and the beast, uh, the, okay. the Disney animated <laughs> yeah. version. I think that was my first, like the, the horns and then the sort yeah. of like, uh, like wolf-like kind of appearance to his upper body sort of thing going on. Um, but everybody's Trolloc is. Yeah, some of them are really derpy looking, though. Like, if you just take it very literally and add on, like, the <laughs> muzzle to, like, a humanoid figure, it's very boring and actually looks yeah. very strange. Um, so there's some art on here that I'm seeing that matches some of what they described, and I'm like, I hope they move away from that because, like, that just seems very boring mm-hmm. and kind of weird. Uh, it doesn't feel like its own species. Uh well, whereas some of them really kind of hone in on that and kind of have like more wolf-like heads, even though I think he describes them having mm-hmm. human eyes. Like this is always fascinating to me when they create like their own creatures for a universe or species uh, or race, whatever they're considered. But it works better when you have like more of a mammal head, like with the like wolf eyes versus doing humanoid eyes, unless you do it right. Otherwise, it's like a human face and you just mm. plastered a muzzle on and that just feels very janky. <laughs> I was even kind of surprised when the Trolloc talked for the first time. I think that's in this chapter, Mm. right? I was like, oh, it's, yeah. Then I was like, oh, this is just quite human, but like grotesque. (laughs) Yeah, I was kind of picturing it as like a mixture of, you know, that that, I don't remember which of the three movies it's in, but when in Lord of the Rings, the the orc in the background, like is born out of the like goop bubble. Oh, like I kind of pictured as like, okay, these are clearly like minions of the bad guy. But then I also got kind of like an Island of Dr. Moreau feel where it's like, Mm -hmm. were these human at some point and he's modifying them and just hasn't found one he likes yet because the one did kind of talk and implied some kind of hierarchy where he was basically like, this guy wants to meet you. And so he was kind of like the messenger. So and I think they described at least one of them having like goat horns. I was like, okay, with, and, ho- and hooves, and also. hooves. Yeah. So yeah. like with yeah. with like Satan being the bad guy, I was like, that's a little on the nose. So I'm happy <laughs> that there's a lot of like variation there. I, I was just gonna say, I think the language is kind of like uh, like narg stay, narg smart, narg no hurt. Like I was like, okay, that's interesting. It's like they are like uneducated and kept lowly or something like that came to me with the language. Oh God. Wow. 
looking at the art you just said. Dan is posting yeah, us so quite a selection of, of DeviantArt, which are very far afield from my uh, <laughs> my mental image of, of Trollocs, <laughs> some of which may have to be scrubbed from my, my, <laughs> but that's, that's, my mind here. These, these, without the horns, yeah. though, these are taking more literally what was described to us. And I don't like this at all. I like more of the bottom one, which, so the, <laughs> the first two I'll describe of like are humans with literally muzzles and like pointy ears and like some like furry arms. And it, it seems but real big, to... right? He just he describes them being real big too. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's missing that feature. But then the the middle one sort of is like a fusion between the first one feels very DeviantArt furry community, and the second one feels like almost like a hybrid between the third image I posted and the first because it's like a little more savage. He has like the wolf like mm-hmm. feet and like the werewolf like muzzle, um, and like I don't know, he seems a little bigger than the humans there. It's it's kind of a chaotic illustration. Um, and the third one just feels more minotaur, but a lot of people are rendering them as like almost like, um, I don't know, like hogs or boars, like just like large boars mm-hmm. with like rammed horns and like they're stocky with like huge shoulders and like backs. Um, that's sort of what I was picturing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's more fun than the way it was described, though, because the description kind of matches like the first two images a little more, except for the height, as you mentioned, Caleb. But I don't know. I'm not... The more literal translation of these is not what my brain was thinking. It's kind of weird. Well, we we get more and more descriptions as it goes on, and each one is a little different too, and you start to get more views of the Trollocs. So I think I think it's safe to say there's a lot of variety, but also that that they're I I don't think they're just like humans with like a couple animal features. Like the way they're described and the way some of them even like drop to all fours and stuff. I'm thinking much um like yeah like more more of that hunched look we're often given and the towering sort of i think that last one is probably yeah closest to my mental image um jordan has said in in interviews that uh the comic book is actually the closest that anybody ever got to what he had in his mind so maybe we'll maybe we'll see those at some point of the uh the adaptation oh, of i the wonder if that last story. one is, is that last image i posted from the comic because i pulled that from the wiki so i'm wondering where they source from it might be from the it graphic novel. It could very novel. well be. I can share this one in the group. This one's from the yeah. Eye of the World. So as as we talk, you guys can see this one's from the comic Caleb's mentioning, which is a pretty interesting image. Uh, I, I kind of like this. Hmm. This one kind of matches that description uh-huh. pretty well. Yeah. He's got like Oh, that is plane. very... That's good. Dial of Dr. Moreau is definitely... Uh, uh, Keely, did you, did you mention yeah. that uh, image before? That th- It also makes me think of... Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, spoilers for Sorry to Bother You, the movie the other the other year. Um, did anybody see that besides me? Uh, the Boots Boots Riley film. Oh, it's really really good. Uh, and I won't say anything else then, uh, since that's getting into spoilers for why why Trollocs might make me think of that. Interesting. <laughs> and we can post these on the Patreon too, so people can have the images to reference while listening. Um, but yeah, these are these are fascinating though. It's like it was. I thought it for the chapter in itself. It's like very much knew something was going to come barging in or it was like the moment when the series set off but i appreciate it that mm-hmm. i don't it was i almost laughed at how fast it just happens it's like such a slow five chapters and then all of a sudden they just literally rammed down the door <laughs> and there's not a lot of cue for it i think like, i knew it was going to happen soon like either this chapter or the next uh, or something was gonna happen but just to have these like chimeras just like barge in like like a whole army of them was like <laughs> it was almost funny. Plot here. Like, yeah, it's just like it's like he he recognized that the audience could get like the readers are could be very bored at this section. He's and they just come barking <laughs> in like literally breaking down the door. <laughs> I just thought it was like a funny moment for it to happen. It is very like the the pace the pace changes like so fast. You're like <laughs> yeah. I'm about it's to like, fall asleep and then it's like da 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 da. 
Yeah, it's almost like yeah, a and I ended up feeling like really bad for Tam because like he's just making dinner. I am invested in this father son <laughs> relationship, and like they make it a point to say like, and they flip the table and they knock over the soup, and it's like yeah. everyone's like the yeah. soup. <laughs> like I just wanted them to have dinner. <laughs> No, it's really, like, and the soup, they, I think they mentioned, like, the soup never gets eaten, and it's sad. Yeah. And then I Which, well, Rand, Rand sort of uses that as an impromptu weapon, right? Doesn't he, like, hurl the soup pot at <laughs> the Trollic's head? Yeah. yeah, that's smart. They don't normally do that, but he just, like, <laughs> tosses it on the first one that comes in. Oh, uh, that, that moment of sadness also, and then I had another one, which I guess maybe is a little bit later, but once I realized that, like, Beltine wasn't going to be this time of merriment i was like oh i'm so sad like they were all so excited like i can just feel their little hopes dashed and it's i don't know yeah that that's a good point though because i was expecting it always happens either during or right after the festival in the cliche fantasy trip so Mm. i do appreciate they kind of expedited that a little bit they don't even get to the festival um but it almost doesn't give that fulfillment because it's like you spent five chapters building this up and I, I, you guys, ha- you, you all have read to chapter 10, but I haven't, but um, getting to chapter six, I'm like, so you, you made us build up all that way and it feels like lack of fulfillment there because now <laughs> things have shifted. So we didn't even get part of that. Usually it's like the disruptor to the event. So I don't know, maybe they're still going to have it and he doesn't get there. So I don't know. You, you all know what happens next, but <laughs> just, just kind of curious about that, how that progresses now that they're stuck in the woods. Yeah, that's true. There's like a little FOMO. I was like, oh, but I was going to be at my first bell time and now I'm going to be there. <laughs> After five who, chapters Who of will I meet as I, as I walk around the Maypole and be uh, like intertwined yeah. with the other youths of, of the village? <laughs> Did anyone else think Midsummer yeah. when they did that? With that movie coming out so recently, oh, I was just yeah. like, I couldn't get that imagery out of my head. I know, it, I know, it's like a common <laughs> like tradition, but I was just like, all I could think of mm. was Midsummer. And I think is it is it this one? I finished chapter five, and I think it was at this point I texted Caleb that I was like, I am very invested, and if anything happens to Tam, I will kill everyone and then myself. <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I just I latched on to this dad character so hard. It's like, you made me care about him, and if you kill him, like, George Martin style, I will flip the table. Was anyone surprised he didn't die this chapter? Like, that threw me off. I thought it was going to be the father figure dies there, like, in that chapter. But he's still sort of alive at the end of chapter five, which was surprising to me. I was like, I... And they kind of backtrack. Usually it's like when that happens and they barge in, house goes up in flames, father figure or, like, mother figure, like, for the protagonist dies in that event shielding the character and they get out of there but their homeland or like home house like their their house or residence is like burned and destroyed and they have to flee to like another setting or environment so it was almost like i had to do a double take when he kind of backtracks to the like the barn and everything so i don't know that that was interesting to me because his at the end of the chapter his his father figure is still alive which isn't Mm. the usual case in fantasy and actually believed him finally, uh, like and was yeah. like trying to was started making preparations right. And he brings out this heron's heron mark sword that seems incredibly fine. Um, and and Rand is really taken aback that he has it and everything. Um, so it does seem like uh, maybe we'll find out more of what's going on there. Um, and yeah, um, things are going to start moving really, really fast from here, uh, uh, as folks have intimated. We are going to be at a much more rapid clip of event in the next five chapters, and then faster after that. I think, uh, and it's just going to be 
uh, a lot more things going on very quickly. Um, did anybody have any final thoughts on, on this first section here as we, as we start to wrap up for this week? Chapter five is so much better than the first four. <laughs> I, finished, <laughs> I finished that one so much faster than I did. The, the first four took a little while from, especially, so Ravens is the worst. I think if I had to like stack them, Ravens was like god awful <laughs> and should not have been in this book in any edition. And then Prologue was great. Slows down a bit. And I was kind of bored for a lot of one to four and then five was actually really engaging and I enjoyed that chapter a lot. Yeah, I actually thought the but since we got to chapter five and things just took off, the the slow start was really okay. I mean I think there's a lot of other things that have much have have many more pages of slowness, like, okay, we got to chapter five and here we go and it's really exciting. So I'm I'm all in. Yeah, I'm definitely all in. I mean, I clearly I cared about the soup more than I ever thought I would. But <laughs> it's I a also, good soup. yeah, and I I also I'm really enjoying that like the creepiness factor of like even though it does kind of very much just copy paste about you know like the Nazgul and everything. I do really fall into like loving that of like just this creepy outsider and you can't see his face and like there's something weird about him where like he defies the laws of nature and so. I am very much on board with that. I'm hoping that the creepiness continues and that it's not going to become yeah. like kind of lame. <laughs> like what if we had, I don't know, a, a leathery, flying, possibly vampiric figure start uh, <laughs> ma- ma- making an appearance. Um, dun, dun, dun. And, yeah. and it, it, it is fun when the, they, I just, it's, it's fun when like, I like when the power structure, it's like, it's so stacked against the protagonist in the beginning. It's like farmland characters level one or zero who have no abilities. <laughs> and like this, this evil being that's at like level a hundred is coming in to like kind of fuck shit up. So like, I like that they, I don't know. That's a, that's a fun trope to me. So I kind of latch onto that. Cause I like the protagonist being pretty powerless to start and then having to kind of build up or get acquainted to a world. Cause then you kind of have that helplessness, which creates the horror factors that you were talking about. So hopefully Mm. they can keep that going for a while. So uh, thanks for listening. We will be back next week with the next set of chapters. We'll be reading chapters six through 10 of Eye of the World. Uh, And as far as the bigger picture for the show, well, after decades of false starts, a Wheel of Time TV series is finally premiering on Amazon this November 19th. It's developed and produced by Rafe Judkins, known for Chuck and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., The first season will be eight episodes. The first three drop at once and the rest will stream weekly until December 24th, Christmas Eve. The show has already been renewed for a second season by Amazon. We'll all be watching it together and bringing you, the audience, our thoughts as we go. I don't know about uh, you all, but I'm pretty excited. Whether it's good or terrible, I'm very interested to see the direction they go with it and the things that are changing and things that... You hinted at, Dan, from having watched the trailer, getting a very different impression than these first couple chapters might necessarily give of where the story is going and where uh, the world is going. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that next time, I think, and, and potentially about the trailer itself. This episode of Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book club, was produced by yours truly. You can... Find me at twitter.com slash Caleb Wimble. You can also find the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash Wattcast podcast, excuse me, Wattcast podcast. Katie, uh, is there anywhere people can find you if they're looking to learn more about you or what you're up to on the internet? Sure. You can find me at 
katiejarvis.com and my name is spelt with a C, so that's a little bit unusual spelling for Katie, but it's C-A-T-I-E-J-A-R-V-I-S. Um, and you can check out some of my writing and thoughts. And I have one novel called The Peacock Room that's available on Amazon, so you can find that there too. Dan, where can people find you? Sorry, some audio troubles there. <laughs> I, um, I have Instagram and Twitter at the handle PansyDan <laughs> with P-A-N-Z-Y-D-A-N. Keely, uh, anywhere people can find you online or do you prefer to keep a lower profile? Um, I, I don't have any public facing social media yet, but I will definitely make one where I can, I'll be probably tweeting my thoughts as we go on. <laughs> That will be fun to read. Um, and remember, you can find us all at Wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash Wattcast. Even $2 a month helps us keep doing this. Your support means a lot. Join us at the $5 Tar Volunteer. As I mentioned, you'll get access to special bonus episodes later on where we talk about uh, things ancillary to the novels and the show. But, you know, you're supporting us just by listening, and we hope you're as interested in following along as we are you can also support us by leaving Wattcast a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your podcorn, pat, podcast platform of choice. This helps a lot and is like the number two way by which we'll find new listeners and which any podcast does. The number one way, of course, is telling a friend about the show. Word of mouth means the world to us. And uh, yeah, we'd love to have uh, more of you to, uh, to exchange ideas with, to hear your questions, to talk about on air, and just to be reading along. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, folks. And remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time, but this is an ending. Goodbye. That's the the check mark. Yeah, we did we did a podcast. (laughs) Good job, Caleb. I like that little ending a lot. (laughs) Not the cheesiest thing in the universe, or or endearingly cheesy. Perfect, (laughs) perfect.